Let's begin our Sunday school class with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for our health and strength, for the sunshine that's out today. Uh, the uh, cold weather is there to remind us that the seasons are quickly changing, but Lord, we thank you uh, for these uh, changes. We thank you, Lord, um, that these seasons teach us physically, mentally, and spiritually to adapt. Uh, we're creatures of habit, and we get comfortable way too quick. And uh, so, Lord, just help us, Father, to uh, use your, your word and allow your Holy Spirit to be our guide as we go in through the different seasons of our life and the seasons that society goes into, that we would be able to adapt to the change, just as Daniel did successfully in the book of Daniel, which we'll be talking about later today. But Father, help us as we study Genesis chapter 36 today. Usually, typically, it would be a very boring chapter for most people. Uh, but Lord, your word, even in the genealogies and even in the names, are so revealing and, 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 and carry so much weight and meaning that there's nothing that's arbitrary or filler that's in your scripture. Every single letter, every single word, uh, everything in the scripture. Even the rabbis say that the spaces between the letters symbolize something, that even the empty spaces mean something. So we thank you for the meaning and depth of your word that we can spend a lifetime reading but never plumb the true depths of it. So Father, we love you and we praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 36, we're going to be talking about Esau, uh, always painted as the bad guy, right? Uh, he's, he's kind of the villain in the biblical narrative, but sometimes maybe he doesn't get quite a fair shake. Uh, so hopefully um, this, this chapter will kind of um, maybe soften your view on Esau just a little bit. So chapter 36 is the generations of Esau. Now, as you know, the, the, the name Esau means hairy. And uh, so it's kind of like uh, Peter, son of, uh, son of Jonah. If he was alive today, he would be called Rocky Johnson. Because Peter means rock. He's the son of Jonah, Jonas, which is the son of John. He would be Rocky Johnson. Johnson is the son of John, right? So if Esau was alive, we would probably be calling him Harry. So in Genesis 22... Uh, or 25 verses uh, 25 and verse 30 tells us about how Esau got his name. So in Genesis 25 verse 25, it says, Now the first came out reddish. All of him was like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. So Esau means hairy, but it also means red. Um, kind of mean, you could kind of put the two together and say it means red hair. Now, in verse 30, it says, So Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me some of this really red stuff, because I'm exhausted. That is why he is called Edom. So we have two names. We have Esau, which means hairy. We have Edom, which means red. And Edom comes from the word Adam, or in the Hebrew it would be pronounced Adom. Edom and Adom. They both mean the same thing. Adam means red earth. And Edom means red, and he's named after the lentil stew that he sold his birthright for. So Harry, or Esau, was his name, but Edom, red, was his nickname, if, if you will. Now, he, of course, became the father of the Edomites. Now, the Edomites, you know, when you, when you have a name, sometimes it changes throughout history, and it changes down through the ages. Uh, because of accent, because of language, because of very uh, many different factors. So we see that the Edomites have become the nation of Idumea. Now, Herod, King Herod, was an Edomite. So in Matthew chapter 2, we read, uh, beginning with verse 13, uh, it says, now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child uh, and his mother during the night and went to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death. This was fulfilled. Uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the boys in Bethlehem 
and in all the surrounding areas. For two years and older, uh, no, two years old and under, according to the time that had been determined by the Magi. Then was fulfilled what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, a loud wailing, Rachel sobbing for her children, and refused to be comforted, because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Uh, those seeking the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But hearing that Archelaus was the king in Judea in place of his father Herod, he became afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Uh, and Galilee was a, uh, it was kind of like a metropolitan area. It was a hodgepodge of people of different ethnicities. They called it Galilee Goyim, which means Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, a lot of Jewish people live there, of course, but uh, it was kind of like um, kind of like a suburb of New York where you had Koreans and Asians and Hispanics and, you know, all living, you know, next to each other in different neighborhoods. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that Yeshua shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, so uh, Herod... It's interesting that Herod was an uh, Edomian. In other words, Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. Now, the thing about Herod is one of the reasons the Jewish people look down upon him is because he was kind of like a Samaritan. He was a half-breed. He did have Jewish lineage. He was considered Jewish in some circles, but he was also an Edomite. Uh, therefore, he was not purely of Jacob's line. And so he was looked down upon. So on the one hand, he tried to curry favor with the Jewish people, especially the poor populace of the Jewish people, by a lot of reforms, a lot of building projects, and, and making things better for the poor Jewish people in, uh, in, the, uh, in the land. He also contributed quite a bit because he was quite the architect, and he contributed quite a bit to the temple, and that was all to bolster his name, to give him a good reputation among the Orthodox Jews that didn't like him for the sake he was a half-breed. So a lot of times the temple during his time was called Herod's Temple. But we see history repeat itself. Esau tried to get rid of Jacob because Jacob was of the prophesied seed line that would bring about the Messiah. He was, the, he was part of the promised uh, messianic line. And so Satan inspired Esau to try to get rid of Jacob because the birthright was taken away from him and the blessing was taken away from him. And of course, Esau didn't want to blame himself for those things, but he brought those things on himself because of who he was. So fast forward, Satan is still using the line of Esau to try to get rid of the messianic line. And here is a perfect direct example. When Herod came to power, uh, and then there was this, these magi from the east coming, prophesying that, that there was going to be a king of the Jews. Well, he, uh, uh, he got paranoid. Now, there was a historian that said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's relative. Herod was so paranoid and so jealous of power, he killed his wife, he killed his sons, he killed all his relatives around him, so that's why it said it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's relative. So once these magi came uh, and he heard about this prophecy, he's like, okay, well, my power is, is in question and you know, I got to get rid of this so I can secure my place on this throne here. So he had all of the children, two years and under, uh, killed. And of course, that fulfilled prophecy. And that story, what does that story remind you of? Of all the male babies being killed two years and under, what does that remind you of? Moses, exactly. So history keeps repeating itself. And especially this, this, this contention, the sibling rivalry between the line of Jacob and the line of Esau. So in Genesis chapter 36, it says, now these are the genealogies. Uh, it, it could also say that this, these are also the families. These are also the histories of Esau. Yeah, generations, that's another good translation. So now, now these are the genealogies, generations, families, history of Esau. That is Edom. Uh, okay. 
Now it says, Esau took his wife from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elam, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, daughter of Zivon, the Hivite, and Basmath, daughter of Ishmael, sister of Nebioth. And Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basmath bore Ruel, and Aholabama bore uh, Jush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now, before we get into his children, Esau lived in uh, a region called Mount Seir. And Mount Seir is located southeast end of the Dead Sea. Now we find in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 2, <clears throat> starting with verse 2, Adonai spoke to me, saying, You have gone around this hill country long enough. Turn to the north. Command the people, saying, You are about to cross into the territory of your relatives, the sons of Esau, who dwell in Seir. Now, uh, Seir, Mount Seir, and the name Seir means hairy men. It means horrors. So apparently the sons of Esau... Uh, got quite the reputation to, of being terrorists, of being very intimidating, warlike people. Hairy men, horrors, and they're also, uh, seer also means riders on the storm. Riders on the storm, boom, 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 boom. Riders on the storm, into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown. Did anybody think of the doors when I said riders on the storm? <laughs> I did. So it means riders on the storm, and they think that this moniker for Seir as being riders on the storm may have been adopted by the, uh, by the storm god Kos, which Kos was one of the patriarchal gods of the Edomites, and Kos was the god of storms. And so again, a storm causes chaos, storm causes devastation, storms cause destruction, and it fits right along with their other monikers of being horrors and being hairy men. So they were kind of like werewolves or Bigfoot type people, you know? Uh, they were big, they were massive, they were hairy. They put fear into those people that lived around them. So we see, uh, we see in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter two, verses um, two through seven, uh, I already read two through four. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, not even a footprint, because I have given the hill country of Seir to Esau as a possession. You are to buy food from them for money so that you may eat, and you are also to buy water from, uh, from them for money so that you may drink. For Adonai your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands, he has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, Adonai your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. So Esau didn't have anything to be envious about. Uh, Esau didn't have anything for the children of Israel to be jealous of. They lived in a barren desert wilderness, so why would they want Esau's land anyway? Because there was really no good natural resources there. It was just a desert wilderness, a very rocky, mountainous region. And of course, that's probably one of the reasons Esau and the Edomites became warlike people because they had to be warlike in order to survive, raiding nomadic tribes that went through and stealing other people's resources in order to survive. So uh, we see that Mount Seir, which is the homeland of Esau, the Edomites, uh, the Edomians, if you will. Again, I said it is southeast end of the Red Sea. And um, there's another passage interesting in Genesis chapter 14, which talks about this region. Okay, Genesis 14, verse 4. Okay, 4 through 6. For 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer uh, came with the kings who were with him, and they defeated the Rephaim and, and Ashtarot, Kiranaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Sheve Kiriatim, the Horites in the hill country of Seir. That's what I want you to, to pay attention to. The Horites in the hill country of Seir, 
That's where Esau will end up living, right? So Genesis 14 is way before, um, you know, the whole Jacob and Esau thing. So the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is beside the wilderness. Then they came again to En Mishpat, this is Kadesh, and they subdued all the territories of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in uh, Hazaron Tamer. So we see in Genesis chapter 14 that the people who used to occupy Mount Seir and the territory of Mount Seir that Esau would eventually inherit and Esau would eventually take over and his relatives would flourish there was home to the Horites. Now the Horites were part of the Canaanite nations that were squatting on the promised land and they, the Horites were relatives of the giants. So Esau and his relatives had to be warlike people in order to secure uh, Mount Seir and that territory as their own. So we see at this time in, in Genesis chapter 14, the Horites flourished there. And at that time, there would be, they would probably end up being too many giants for Esau's family to conquer. So Genesis 14 talks about how these giants were kind of thinned out. So when Esau and his family finally made it uh, to Mount Seir and took it over as their own, there were still giants there, but not as many giants as we read about in Genesis chapter 14. So, you know, we can call Esau's line giant killers. They were so tough and so rugged and warlike that they were able to slay giants in order to secure the land that they lived in. So we're talking about pretty powerful people here. Now, Seir was a desert, and this is a confirmation of Jacob's blessing on Esau. So back in Genesis 27, we see where, you know, uh, Jacob was blessed with abundance of rain and land and prosperity and all this. And there was no blessing left for Esau. Esau's begging his father, bless me, me too, my father, bless me. So we see in Genesis chapter 27, verse 38, Esau said to his father, do you just have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, said to him, Behold, away from the land's fatness shall be your dwelling, away from the dew of the sky above. By your sword shall you live, and your brother shall you serve. But when you tear yourself loose, you will tear his yoke off your neck. So this perfectly fits exactly what happened to Esau's uh, family line. They lived in Mount Seir, which was a desert place. It was away from the fatness of the land. The fatness would be oasises and, and a lot of uh, fields with grass and a lot of foliage and vegetation for cattle and for things like this. So Mount Seir fits perfectly the prophetic blessing, if you can even call it that, that Isaac gave to Esau. Behold, away from the land's fatness shall be your dwelling, away from the dew of the sky, which means Esau was going to live in a desert. And Seir was a dry, desert, rocky wasteland. It fits the prophecy perfectly. By your sword you shall live. As soon as they got to Mount Seir, they had to fight off giants and exterminate the giants in order to take over that land as their inheritance and possession. So indeed they lived by the sword. Not only that, but like I said, they, they, they were called hairy men. They were called horrors. In other words, terrors. They were like terrorists. Uh, they, were, uh, they were called riders on the storm. They had a reputation of being these warlike, uh, this warlike tribe you stayed away from. So in order to survive, they probably had to steal uh, herds and flocks from nomad nomadic tribes that were going about their territory or skirting the edge of their land in order to survive. So the prophecy is being fulfilled uh, that Isaac spoke to, to Esau word for word. Uh, okay, in verse 30, uh, chapter 36, back to 36, verses 6 through 8. Meanwhile, uh, no, wrong chapter there. Okay. Now Esau took his wives, his sons, and his daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his livestock, all his cattle, and all his possessions that he acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to the land away from his brother Jacob. 
So that kind of fits the prophecy that you're going to you're going to serve your brother, but at a certain point you're going to shake his yoke off your neck. This was the beginning of Esau shaking the yoke of Jacob off his neck, making a, a, a name and a place and a people for himself by going away as far away from his brother's influence as possible. Verse seven: For the for their possessions were too numerous for them to dwell together, and the land where they were residing was unable to support them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. All right, so Esau and Edom is a symbol of rebellion, a symbol of selfishness, a symbol of unrighteousness and evil, but we are commanded to still love them. It's very easy to hate somebody who's done you wrong. It's easy to hate somebody who's bullied you and harassed you. It's easy to hate somebody who wants to kill you. That's just kind of our natural fallen nature to want to hate our enemy. And one thing, um, I forget which president it was. I, I, oh, I think it was actually uh, JFK. He was talking about, you know, the, the, the wars and stuff like that, and that we have to realize that the people we're fighting are just like us. They're human beings just like us. They have family. They have loved ones. We're not so different, and we shouldn't hate our enemy. And uh, so it would be easy to make an excuse to hate Esau, and God knew that the Israelites would want to hate Esau after all the dastardly things that Esau has done to their people. But God said in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 8, Deuteronomy 23, verse 8, You are not to detest an Edomite, or you are not to hate an Edomite, for he is your brother. You are not to detest an Egyptian, for you were an outsider in his land. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You know, I mean, blood is blood. You can't choose who you're related to. You're related to whoever you're related to by blood. That's just the way genetics work. And so God warned the children of Israel, don't hate an Edomite. Don't detest an Edomite. Now, I have... I have a, a half-brother. We're kind of enemies. We're kind of Jacob and Esau. I haven't done anything to him that I know of, but he just does not like me, and I've tried to hold the olive branch out several times. He hasn't uh, received it. So, you know, there's times in my life where I just wanted like, well, if he's going to hate me, I might as well hate him. But I can't do that. We both have the same father. You know, I can't, you know, just because he doesn't like me for whatever reason or because we're not close for whatever reason, whatever excuses are in our minds, I still have to love him. And I, and I pray for him and I want to see him get saved at some point. So God warns the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob, not to hate an Edomite, their brother Esau. Uh, also in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what, what, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, in other words, even those, even those people that are traitors, do the same, don't they? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than anyone else? Even the pagans do that, don't they? Therefore, be perfect or be complete, just as your Father in heaven is perfect and or complete. So the trademark of a believer is to love. That is supposed to be our earmark. That is, is, is what we're, you know, how we're supposed to uh, differentiate ourselves from other people is the way that we love. So we're to love our enemies. We may disagree with them. Uh, we may not like what they do, but as the saying goes, we're to hate the sin, but love the sinner. So here God is, uh, is telling the people not to hate Edomites. They're still family. They're the bad boy brother, right? But they're still family. And God loved and cared for Esau just like he loved and cared for Jacob. If God didn't love Esau, he would have told the Israelites, well, you're about ready to enter 
into Esau's land. You're about ready to enter into Mount Seir. And after all the dirty, rotten things that Esau done to you, just wipe them out. Take their land, take their cattle. You know, I'm going to give it to you as a possession. But God, no, you don't read that in the scripture. It says you're going to pass through Esau's land. And Esau is terrified of you. But I'm not going to give you one footstep, not one inch of Esau's land, because I've given it to him. I've given Mount Seir to Esau and his relatives. When you go through their land, don't think that you're entitled to whatever's there. You pay for the food you eat. You pay for the water that you drink. So God, this shows that God even uh, cares for the people that are not of the Messianic line, not of the chosen seed line, because you had other enemies of um, Jacob, which was his cousins from Lot, Moab and, Amna, and Ammon, right? And they also passed through the, through the lands of Moab and Anna, Ammon. And he said, look, you're about ready to pass through their land. I'm not going to give you their land either because I've given it to the sons of Lot. Keep going. Just make sure that you don't cause any trouble. Don't provoke them in any way that would make them attack you. Pay for your food, pay for your water, and be on your way. But it was that supernatural fear that God put into Esau's family and Moab's family and Ammon's family to kind of keep them away from Jacob as they were passing through. It was kind of a protective measure that God had put upon them. Uh, okay, so in Ephesians... Ephesians chapter 6, if I can find it here. Ephesians chapter 6, there we go. Uh, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the worldly forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Jacob's true enemy was not Esau. Jacob's true enemy was not the Edomites, was not Esau's relatives. Even though that Esau and his family hated Jacob and his family, Esau uh, or Jacob was, and his relatives were actually fighting against the spiritual principalities that were influencing Esau. Because Esau had given way to his flesh, Esau had given way to his selfishness, uh, you know, he and he wouldn't accept God's plan for his life. And he just couldn't stand the fact that Jacob was going to be the patriarch. Jacob was going to inherit everything. He turned against him. So you're you're fighting against an idol, idealism. You're fighting against, um, you know, a, an attitude. You're not actually fighting against people. And that's what we got to remember, because when somebody comes against us, we want to hate that person instead of hate that thing that's inside them. Because a lot of times people act out of the flesh and it's really not them. How many times have we seen somebody explode on somebody else and then they come back and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't know what come into me. That really wasn't me. That's not who I am. I don't want you to think that I'm that way. I'm so sorry. It's these spiritual influences. So I think God is over and over and over reminding us to love our enemies, especially those that we are related to. Because uh, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. So in 2 Corinthians... Uh, we're going to read what uh, the Apostle Paul said about some things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful through God for tearing down strongholds. We are tearing down false arguments and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah, ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So here, over and over and over, we're seeing that God is telling his people, don't hate your relatives, don't hate people that don't believe the same way, look the same way, smell the same way, act the same way, have the same customs and traditions as you. Love them. Love your enemies. Love, love people around you. So Esau is not an enemy, just a bad boy, but he's still family. So as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God commanded the children of Israel, don't hate an Edomite and don't hate an Egyptian because you stayed in their land for such a long time. And that land actually protected you, even though it ended up in slavery later on. So back to Genesis chapter 36, where we continue on with the, the genealogy. And we already read verses 1 through 5. Esau married into the Canaanite tribes, 
And if you'll remember, the Canaanite tribes, according to uh, Genesis chapter 6, the sons of Canaan were the ones who uh, cohabitated with the fallen angelic race. And they created these, what the King James calls giants, but what most Bibles are translating now as Nephilim. Nephilim means the fallen ones. It does mean giant, but it means the fallen ones. So you had the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, which is always translated, which is always meant in the Old Testament as angels, the sons of God, Beneha Elohim, saw the daughters of men, that's mortal human beings, desired them. And even Jude talks about these rebellious angels leaving their first estate, which means leaving their heavenly realm, the realm that they should have stayed in and lived in, but they left that. And so we see that they cohabitated with these women and corrupted the human genome. And that's why the Canaanites were to be annihilated because they were outside of God's creative order. They, 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 they no longer could be redeemed because they were half angel, half human. And because of this, they, they, they didn't fit into God's creative order. It was something, a perversion, something outside of God's created order. They were not quite human, so they couldn't be redeemed. They were part fallen angel, so they didn't really have a place in heaven or in hell right at this point. So they are what we consider, they're, they're disembodied spirits of these Nephilim, these giants, are what we know as demons today. They're called evil spirits. They're called familiar spirits. Fallen angels are never called familiar spirits. They're never called evil spirits. They're just called angels or fallen angels. Uh, so anyway, we see that Esau's line marries into the Canaanite line. So the Esau, uh, his line was kind of corrupt. Esau marries into the Canaanite tribes, something forbidden, and grossly displeased his parents. And so to kind of make up for that, because he knew his mom and dad were kind of mad at him for marrying these Canaanite women, uh, he ends up going to Uncle Ishmael, which is, uh, you know, the, the brother of Isaac, and he marries Ishmael's daughter to try to make up for this. And we see this in um, Genesis 27, verse 46. It says, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these women from the daughters of the land, what is my life to me? So she's worried that Jacob might marry Canaanite women. Now, you go into uh, chapter 28, verses uh, 5 through 9. It says, Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went toward Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau saw that Isaac blessed Jacob when he sent him to Paddan Aram to take for himself a wife from there. When he blessed him and commanded him, saying, Don't take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Jacob listened to his father Isaac and to his mother and went towards Paddan Aaron. Then Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan were contemptible in his father Isaac's eyes. So Esau went to Ishmael and took uh, Mahalath, the daughter of, Ishmael's son, uh, of Ishmael, Abraham's son, Nebaioth's sister, for his wife, besides his other wives. So he says, well, maybe I'll kind of smooth things over with mom and dad by marrying somebody that they would like or somebody that they would approve of, somebody that's not a Canaanite. So um, in Genesis 36, verse 2, it says, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Ziphon, the Hivite, now, the rabbis, I was looking into some rabbinical commentaries. The rabbis say that Adah is a product of an adulterous relationship, and thus Esau's line from her is illegitimate, which I thought that was very interesting. That's one thing about the, the rabbis and sages and the, the Jewish uh, commentaries and literature. They kept very meticulous track of people's genealogies. And, uh, you know, so I thought this was a very interesting commentary. Now, verse 5 says... And Aholabama bore uh, Jeush and Jalam and Korah. These were Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now Korah, the rabbis say, is really an illegitimate child of Eliaphaz, uh, which is Esau's son. 
So in uh, Genesis 26, 34, and 28, 9, it gives a list of all of Esau's wives, and they were all Canaanites, all part of these Canaanite tribes that, that intermarried and mingled with and mixed their genetics with the fallen angelic realm, as we read in Genesis 6. So the only, only pure line that Esau married into was, was uh, e, um, Ishmael's line, because uh, so, you know, that, that he did that to try to smooth things over with his parents. Now back to verses 6 through 8. Now Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the people of his household as well as his livestock, all his cattle and all his possessions that they acquired in the land of Canaan and went to the land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too numerous for them to dwell together, and the land where they were residing was unable to support them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in Mount Seir, which is Edom. So Esau is Edom. So Esau's sons were, this is kind of ironic. Esau's sons were born in the promised land. Jacob's sons were born in Mesopotamia outside of the promised land. Esau removed his family from the land of blessing and promise. And Jacob brought his family into the land of blessing and promise. So ironically, Israel, uh, born into blessing, rejected it by rejecting um, by rejecting Yeshua, uh, Gentiles were born outside of blessing and accepted through Yeshua. So it's kind of ironic that Israel was born into the blessing, but when Yeshua came along, they rejected him uh, because they totally didn't understand all the prophecies connected to him at that time. Whereas Gentiles were born outside of, the, of blessing and were brought in through Yeshua, as Paul talks about the Gentiles being grafted in. Now, verses 15 through 30, are all talking about uh, it's your typical genealogy and so there's a lot of names which I'll probably butcher so I'm not gonna read all those but it talks about all of Esau's descendants and relatives and who was chief and who was leader and you know who was part of this clan who was part of that clan but what I'll say regarding those passages is this is that it's your typical genealogy and rabbis say that Edom eventually a part of a uh, Esau's family, part of Edom, evolved into the Roman Empire, into the people of Rome. So it's kind of interesting where if, if Rome is actually indeed a relative of Esau, we see that, that the prophecy that, that uh, Isaac gave to Esau is that one day you're going to shake the yoke of your brother off your neck. And that happened in the Roman Empire when Rome took over Israel during the time of Jesus. It was under Roman occupation. So I kind of think that is, that's very fascinating there. Now in Genesis 36, verse 16, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, Chief Amalek. Pay attention to that, Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. Huh? Okay. Well, they're chiefs. That's just the King's way, King James way of saying a chief. They called them dukes or whatever. But, you know, if you want to get Semitic in, you know, what the translation really says, it's, it's a chief because they had chiefs. You didn't have dukes until the medieval time or during the time of kings and queens in England and Europe. So it says Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, Chief Amalek. Now, Amalek is an enemy of Israel. So uh, Timnah, a Horite concubine of Esau, was not a legal wife. Thus, they were not true kinsmen of Israel. So on the one hand, you see the Bible say, don't hate Edom, don't hate Esau, don't hate your brother. He's still your brother. Love him, pray for him, etc. But here, in, in, when you read Deuteronomy 23.8 and Exodus 17.14, God commands Israel to wipe out Amalek, to wipe them out. So is there a contradiction here? No, not necessarily if you accept the fact that uh, Timnah, which was a Horite, which was a Canaanite woman, probably polluted with the Nephilim gene, was a concubine and not a legal wife. This, this concubine is, is different than the concubine that Zilpah and Bilhah were. Zilpah and Bilhah were um, surrogate, surrogate mothers and they became legal wives. They gained legal wife status after the fact. But Timnah was more like a woman that was in a harem, if you will. So Timnah, a Horite, 
was a concubine of Esau and thus not a legal wife, thus not a kinsman of Israel, and probably because she had Nephilim DNA, further removed her from being considered any kind of relative to, to Jacob and to Israel. So we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 8, you are not to detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You are not to detest an Egyptian, for, he is, for you are an outsider in his land. But then in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, it says this. Adonai said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and rehearse it in the hearing of Joshua, for I will utterly blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Now there's a third reason, a triary reason, why God wanted Amalek destroyed. Not only because it was an illegitimate line of Esau, not only that it was most likely that it, they had Nephilim DNA, but also because Amalek threw the first punch. Amalek attacked Israel uh, when they were leaving Egypt and harassed them and hounded them and killed a lot of them. So God's saying, okay, you know, Amalek is not a legitimate son of Esau, not a legitimate line, so they can be your enemy. And it's interesting because the rules of warfare, the rules of warfare um, that God laid out for the children of Israel is different for a Canaanite as opposed to somebody that wasn't a Canaanite. Uh, I'm trying to find the passage here because I just read it just the other day. Well, anyway, I can't find the passage right off the bat. Oh, maybe it's, maybe it's Deuteronomy 20. Okay, yeah, I think it's Deuteronomy 20. So anyways, Deuteronomy 20, for the sake of time, we won't read that. But it talks about that the seven Canaanite nations, that you're to totally wipe them out, totally annihilate them. A lot of people say, well, how can God be a loving God? Um, you know, isn't he promoting genocide here? Well, it's not genocide if these people weren't 100% human beings because Jesus died for human beings. He didn't die for dogs, didn't die for cats, didn't die for fallen angels, didn't die for hybridization of human and angel because, you know, Jesus died for mankind, for humankind. And that's why through Genesis 3.15, God said that the seed line of, of mankind has to be pure because during Noah's day, it says the whole world was corrupt and only Noah's family was pure. And a lot of people say, oh, well, that just means that he was spiritually righteous. He was right with God. Well, no, if you look into the Hebrew, it, it, it does mean that, but it also means he was genetically pure, that his family was not genetically corrupted by the uh, fallen angel DNA that was incorporated uh, through the Canaanite nations. And so the whole world was flooded, not only because of the sin, but because if life kept going as it were, there would be no pure genetic seed line for the Messiah to come through. Then nobody would be saved. We would all be doomed to an eternity in hell because we, could, we would be unredeemable. Not only that, but there's evidence that even the animal kingdom was being polluted and corrupted by genetic manipulation. That's why we have all these mythologies of minotaurs and centaurs and you know, Medusa and all these like hybridizations. We even see it in paganism where you know, the, a lot of the gods of Egypt had human bodies with animal heads. Uh, so the rules of warfare was that wipe out these giants, these Nephilim, these fallen angels, uh, these fallen angel hybrids. But once you do that, if you make war with anybody else, first issue a peace treaty with them. If they slap the olive branch away and don't accept peace, then it's okay to engage in war, but you spare the women and children and take the, the cattle and things of yourself. So there was, there was you know, kind of rules for warfare, humane treatment, uh, for those that were outside of the land of Canaan, outside of the polluted genetic line of the Canaanites. So there's two different modes of warfare. So Amalek was probably one of those from Esau's line that was illegitimate and was probably polluted by the Nephilim gene. Now back to Genesis 36. We'll finish it up here. In 24, 30, Genesis 36, 24. Okay, these are Zebon's sons, Aya and Anna, 
That is the Anna who founded who found the hot springs in the desert while he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. Um, pasturing donkeys. It's interesting that in the Jewish commentary, uh, it says that the Jewish rendering of this verse is discover, discovered mules in the desert. Here, in this translation, it says pasturing donkeys. But in the Jewish rendition of Scripture, it says uh, discovered mules in the desert. Now, what is a mule? Right, it's a cross between a horse and a donkey. Now, in God's word, it says don't cross species. I mean, we have a variety of species in the dog world. You've got St. Bernard's and Great Danes, and then you have Chihuahuas, right? So there's a wide variety of dogs. And if dogs interbreed with dogs, it's okay. But you can't breed a dog with a cat. You can't breed, you know, one species with another species. And if you can, that, you know, can, can mules reproduce? No. They're, they're sterile. They can't reproduce. So you don't have a genetic line of mules. Mules are that crossbreeding between horses and donkeys, and when, they're, when the mule is born, it's half horse, half donkey. We use it as a, a, a labor of a workforce, but it is, uh, they're, they're sterile. They can't reproduce. So this is talking, this is, the rabbis say that this hints that Esau even went further in his rebellion against God by cross-breeding species, cross, uh, species, which God said not to. We're not to do it with seeds. We're not to do it with animals because God made his created order the way he wanted. It was perfect. We just know how to mess things up. Once we start dippling and dappling in genetics and DNA and splicing seeds and splicing species, we, we create things that we don't know what the repercussions are except for years and years down the road. Uh, and, it's, and it's a negative effect on the environment. It's a negative effect on God's created order. So it's interesting here that uh, the rabbis are kind of hinting that Esau's family promoted these cross-species hybridizations. All right, let's move to verses uh, 31 through 39. Now, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of the city was uh, Dinahaba. When Bela died... Jobab, son of Zerah, from Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham, from the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. From the land of the Temanites. That's interesting. I want to focus in on that once we get done with this passage. When Hushim died, Hadad, son of Bedad, who struck down the Midianites in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of the city was Avit. When Hadad died, Samla from uh, Mascara reigned in his place. When Salma died, uh, Shaul, we could say Saul, from uh, Rehavot by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan. Baal Hanan refers to a pagan deity, refers to a pagan god. So here we see that Esau just full-fledged started worshiping other gods besides Yahweh, the God of Israel, besides the God of his fathers. So when uh, Saul died, Baal Hanan, son of um, Akbor, reigned in his place. When Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, died, and this, pro this possibly could have hinted also that Esau's kingly line started intermarrying with the Nephilim line, because a lot of these Nephilim kings, you have Og, king of Bashan, who was a ridiculous amount tall, like he was, some say he was 15 feet tall, anywhere from 10 to 15 feet tall. You have Sihon, was another giant. Um, so Esau was possibly being polluted by this time with the full-fledged with the Nephilim gene. So when Baalhanan, son of Akbor, died, and when these kings called the Rephaim, they believed that because their descendants were the fallen angels, that they are godlike. So not only are they they're kings, they believed also that they were demigods. So when Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place, and the name of the city was Pau, and the wife's name was Metebel, uh, daughter of Matred, daughter of Mizihab. Okay, she had all these kings, but what was interesting is that set in verse 34, when Jobab died, Hushim, from the land of the Temanites, 
reigned in his place. So there is, there's other extra-biblical documents like the book of Jasher, the book of Jubilees, that talk about at first Esau had his own brothers. Um, his own brothers reign over the people. But at some point, Esau said, we don't want our relatives, we don't want our relatives um, ruling over us anymore. Let's get foreign people to rule over us. And so some believe that this place in verse 34 is when Esau gave up his kingly line to foreigners to start ruling over him. When Jobab died, Hushim, from the land of the Temanites, not the land of Seir, not the land of Edom, but the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Uh, so Edomite kings, the legend is, is that later they had foreign kings rule over them, and that began Edom's downfall. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Israel is forbidden to have any foreigners rule and reign over them. If they're going to have a king, it's got to be from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's got to be from, and we know that the kingly line ended up being the line of Judah, which that's the line that Yeshua, Jesus, is from. Okay. So, did anybody expect to hear all that just from a book, from a chapter of genealogies? So, hopefully, you were able to uh, get a better understanding of Esau, of his people, of his culture, of his customs, of his line, of the history behind it. So, these Jewish commentaries are are, are very valuable, and these extra biblical uh, books and literatures are very valuable to kind of fill in the gaps, answer a lot of questions that we find in our canonical text. Now, you've got to remember that the canonical texts were written in such a way that it assumed the reader knew things. But we are like 4,000 years removed from these passages, so we lose a lot through time, lose a lot through history, lose a lot through translation. So there's a lot of things we read that's a big question mark to us because we didn't live during that time. And we don't know the inside stories. Those are preserved in like the book of Jasher, the book of Jubilees, a lot of the Jewish commentaries that kind of help fill in those gaps, which I think is really, really fascinating, really interesting. All right, so let's go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in the so-and-so begat so-and-so passages that, you know, at face value, it looks pretty boring. At face value, it looks, oh, there's nothing there. Let's move along and get to something more exciting in the scripture. But when we stop and take our time and start researching the lines and the genealogy and the family and the history and the stories and the commentaries and the extra biblical text behind all that, we find that the passage comes alive and becomes so more rich and so more meaningful. And so, Lord, we just ask that the lesson that we walk away from this is that we not hate our enemies. We not hate those that are different from us because you commanded the Israelites not to hate their brother Esau, their brother Edom, the Edomites. Even though they, they treated them bad and dastardly things against them, we're to still love them. So let's remember that we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's not the human being that we're actually fighting or warring against or hate. It's that spiritual fallen nature, that those, those spiritual influencing entities that are in those very people that we're fighting against. Because this warfare is spiritual. It's not physical. And so, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask and give thanks for these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.